Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We'll get there in just a, just a minute. It's been good to be here this morning. I hope you feel the same. Um, from, from creation, God made us different than He made everything else. Um, he esteemed us differently than He did other things. Sure, all, all that He created was good, but, but we were given the distinction of being created in, in His image. People like, like you and me bear his, his image. We're created in God's image, created in Christ Jesus for good works, it says in, in Ephesians 2. Works which Paul says God prepared us to do from the very beginning. That's what we were created to do, to do these good works for him. We would be like God, able to uh, create things as he does, um, bearing the image of God in the way that we act towards other people, the way that we act towards His creation. Remember, He, was, he gave us a task right from the beginning to take care of His creation. However, uh, you, if you know the story uh, of, of Genesis, it didn't take very long uh, for that image of God to be, to be stained, at least the image that we were bearing in ourselves to be stained. Genesis chapter 6 says that every intent of the heart of man was evil continually. That's kind of what it built up to. And things only get worse. But later in the narrative, uh, later in, in, in Genesis, Abraham and his lineage, they're, they're chosen to be these image bearers of God. So it wouldn't just be all people necessarily, even though all people still bear the image of God. But God was going to put special emphasis on this group, right? The Israelites were going to bear his name. And it says in Genesis 12 at the beginning there, Part of that promise is that this people was going to be, they were going to be a blessing to other people. They were going to bring blessing to other people. God's blessing would be brought to others through this, through this nation. Well, this nation eventually becomes uh, enslaved in Egypt, moving on into the book of Exodus. Um, but God promises to take them out in Exodus chapter 3. And after being delivered once again, the people are being brought and they're able to, to worship God as a community collectively again. And when that when that comes to fruition in Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus 19, God makes a covenant with His people at Mount Sinai. But before He gives those commands in Exodus 19, uh, in Exodus 19, there it is. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 3, it says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on, the, on eagle, eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. And for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So these blessings that God was going to give this, this, this people, they're, they're predicated on the people obeying the voice of God, on obeying uh, the commands that God has, has given them. Now, before we get into some of those commands, that's what I want to do this morning. Uh, but before we get into those commands, it's, it's important to note that these commands uh, were given for their own benefit. Like it wasn't some sort of deal like, hey, I brought you out of Egypt now. Now you owe me something. You've got to do all these things for me. And no, it wasn't that. Actually, these commands were a way to continue the deliverance of these people, right? These commands were going to set God's people apart. That because they're set apart through these commands that God has given and their obedience to it, that they would continue to be a blessing to these other nations, right? That, that was kind of, that was a part of the design. It would distinguish them from the rest of the world. Obeying God would keep them in that image of God, right? 
Man had abandoned the image, but God wants to bring the people back through this chosen people who would bear his name. Well, this morning, I want to discuss uh, the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments, right? I want to talk the first three, even though I'll admit, typically as, as they're organized, it would be the first four that you might pair together. Um, but just for the sake of this lesson, I want to look at the first three. And as we look at the first three, I really want to emphasize one in particular. So the first three commandments you read in Exodus chapter 20, uh, the first being that you shall have no other God before me. Second, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And the third being you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, all of these commandments uh, demand a certain level of reverence for God. You read that? Uh, it, it demands that you revere God in a, in a particular way. So because he has brought them out of slavery from Egypt... And he's going to be honored as the one who delivered on that promise. Uh, they lay out how they should properly honor God. So in order uh, to truly bear the image of, his, uh, of God, uh, his people would, would better, sh they had better show a proper reverence for that image in which they bear. So no, you should have no other gods before me, right? Maybe all these other nations, they got other gods that they want to worship, but not my people. God's people would only worship the one true God, as it talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. One God. Uh, no likeness or no idol of any kind. Though the world is going to have many gods and they're going to try to create these things that uh, bear the image of their God, God's people aren't going to do that. And they're certainly not going to fall down and worship anything like that because they're going to revere the God who made them, the God who delivered them in that way. And then the third being... The one I want to take a closer look at this morning. They're not going to take the name of the Lord in vain. They're not going to take the name of the Lord in vain. We often look at this phrase, uh, this, this commandment, as we're not going to say God's name in an irreverent way. And I think that that's not a bad way to look at it. Uh, as we use God and we speak about God, we ought not do that in some irreverent or flippant way. Way. However, I'm not sure that's exactly what's being communicated in this particular commandment. I think if we limit it to just that, we miss out on a more impactful meaning uh, that I want to explore this morning. But in order to do that, we kind of have to define two different terms that are laid out here. One being the word take, what does that mean? And the word vain. I want to look at that. The word take, it's not like it means anything that you weren't expecting or anything like that. It just means to, to lift up. The literal meaning of it is to lift up. Up. And so uh, there, there's the, that, that literal is used throughout the Old Testament, right? It's just literally to pick something up and then carry it somewhere else, right? But there's also this figurative meaning, which is used quite frequently as well. Um, it's used in the context of, of it's like bearing the weight of something. Um, it's used in the context of a, a sin offering of some kind. Um, and in this sin offering, that the, the offering is bearing the weight of that sin. We also see it, see it in the figurative sense uh, in describing Aaron's priestly garments. That uh, upon the breastplate would be the names of the sons of Israel. And Aaron would then bear their names in the holy place as a memorial before the Lord. So they're taking with him, bearing the weight of that as, as he goes through this um, procedure, right? So this to me, this figurative sense, seems... Seems like this is what's being accomplished here. Seems like a more accurate meaning of this third command, or at least a more demanding one. Like, we bear the name of the Lord wherever we go. We are taking it with us. We are carrying it with us wherever we go. Well, then the word vain, 
Uh, the word vain just literally means emptiness, right? Uh, and it's even used in some contexts to mean lie. Actually, when these Ten Commandments are repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, that ninth commandment, uh, do not bear false witness, do not lie, actually uses this word. Don't say empty things, things that are meaningless. That's not what you're supposed to do. But then it also is used in such a way that this thing cannot accomplish what it's trying to accomplish. So uh, Psalm 16, verse 11, give us help from our troubles for vain or useless or it's not going to do what I want it to do is the help of man. It's vain. So if we were to put these meanings together, uh, I think this command would, would, would read something like this. You shall not wear or, or carry the name of the Lord in an empty or meaningless manner. Do you feel that a little bit more? That everywhere we go, we are almost like a jersey of some kind. We are going around. If we're going to say that we are followers of God, we are carrying His name with us wherever we go. As image bearers, after all, we represent God and we carry His name. And we're not going to do it in some meaningless or empty way. Well, after hearing these commandments and all the, the judgments of the Lord, um, the people agreed to do them, right? They say, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. We're going to be obedient to this. But similar to how quickly it took man to taint the image of God in the book of Genesis, we see it here in Exodus as well. Exodus 32 and verse 8, uh, God speaks to Moses and says, They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. That's a pretty amazing thing that they're doing. The, the, the amount of uh, boldness it takes to do something like this, because they're not just building uh, or creating an idol of some kind. We've already talked about how that's not a very good thing to do. They're not just doing that, but they're, they're giving it the name of God. They're allowing this idol to bear God's name, to carry God's name. And not only that, they're attributing it the deliverance of Egypt, or from Egypt. The, the, the greatest thing that God has, has done for His people, they're now saying, it's this calf that is, that, that, that's done it. This represents God. Now, not only had man back in Genesis chapter 3 tainted God's image, now his own chosen people are doing the same. And even as Moses and as many others struggled to lead uh, the people, Israel, uh, the people Israel, they, they still represented or bore the name of God in vain. And they were not set apart from the world as they were supposed to do. They weren't a blessing to other nations as they were supposed to be. But God, God in His wisdom gave the world the ultimate image bearer. God gave the world God in the flesh, the Christ, of whom the prophet had spoken of, the image of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. God gave us Jesus. And Jesus came to be this human representation of God, the one who would bear God's name for all people who would reveal God's goodness, he would reveal God's instruction, he would be an example to man, and he would redeem those who chose to follow him. But he also came to transform us, to change us from who we were. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. We're being brought back to that image that we were created in. And that happens through Jesus. Jesus is the one who transforms us 
into that. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 4 saying that due to this transformation, or perhaps because of this transformation, or it's a part of the transformation, there are things that we do, and then there are things that we don't do. That we're not just called to believe in Jesus in like a light sense of that word, where we're just going to avoid certain things. We are going to follow him. We're going to be disciples of him, those who are willing step for step Willing to follow Jesus. Jesus makes this pretty plain, I believe, uh, in Luke chapter 14. Go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 14. At the end of Luke 14, he, he speaks in parables there. He gives three different illustrations. As he speaks to a crowd, he gives these three metaphors of those who do not carry his, uh, his cross. Those who are not truly disciples of his. And the first one he gives is that of a, of a builder. Let's read that. Luke chapter 14, uh, beginning verse 27. It says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So the builder... The builder does not look closely at his funds. He doesn't look closely enough and total the cost of the tower, and therefore he has an unfinished product. He can't finish the tower. I'm going to guess many of us have some unfinished projects. Uh, but unlike, unlike me, I, I can just kind of store that unfinished project in my garage and no one else is the wiser. This person, on the other hand, has it on display for everybody. This, is, this particular project is open for everyone to see a revelation of this man's short-sightedness, a revelation of this, uh, of this man's uh, inability to truly calculate what it is that he's trying to do. I'll give a, a, a more uh, modern-day example um, as this man is, is therefore ridiculed. I'll give a modern day example. Imagine there's a new house that's being built, right? Uh, we, we see these projects all over the place, right? A new house is being built and uh, the owners of this particular lot decide to get a construction company to help them with that. And just for the sake of illustration, let's just call that company DLS Construction. Maybe that, that, that works, right? And so they get this company and they're getting them to, to build on this house. And they have this uh, contractor, this, the, the, the owner of this company. He's going he's gonna to be the guy on this project. Let's, just for the sake of illustration, let's just call him Frank. Okay? And then, but let's say Frank decides to hire out another contractor. Someone who works for him, this young upstart. Let's call him Dan. I don't know. Um, and so they get all, this, this, this construction company who's going to get this thing under, underway. And so they start working. Dan is working on this project. He starts building. Everything's looking good until he's out of money. The money that he was given for this project, he now no longer has any and he can't complete this project. And then as the sign is out on the front of the lot saying who's in charge of this whole thing, what company's taking care of this whole thing, now everybody knows. Because as people do, you, you drive by and you're like, man, it's been a year and they're still in the same state right now. They're, they're, not, they're not doing anything, anything more. Well, I'll tell you what, who's the one bearing the ridicule there? Sure, there's a certain level of ridicule that would go on this young upstart Dan, right? But it's the name of the company that everyone else is seeing. He's the one, that company is the one who's going to bear the weight, the embarrassment, the ridicule that comes with it. When we claim to be followers of Jesus, but we fail to do what we said we're going to do, there's a certain level of shame that comes upon us, yeah. 
But there's a certain level of shame that goes upon the one we represent. And it's not due that it's not, it's not due the one that we represent. The shame should be on us. And yet for the rest of the world, they see God in a different light because of the way that we have acted, right? If we're going to carry the, our cross, if we're going to carry the name of Jesus, we've got to be people who are willing to do what we said we're going to do. And I'll have more to say about part of the meaning of this a little later, but I think what we need to at least understand is that when we do not follow Jesus as He has called us to follow, we are carrying His name, taking His name in vain. The second illustration is that of a king uh, in battle. Let's read that, uh, beginning in verse 31. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So the king fails to consider the size of his army or fails to consider the size of the opposing Army. And I think uh, what's implied here is that this king is defeated. Either he's just totally destroyed because he didn't do it, or he gives himself up because he chooses not to go into it. There, there is defeat that comes with it, and, like the example before, a certain level of ridicule that would go with this. Now, I don't think the application is, don't follow Jesus if you don't think you can do it. No, no, that, that, that's not it. That is not what Jesus is trying to, trying to do. But I believe what Jesus is trying to illustrate here is that this is a pretty tall task that we have, carrying our cross, carrying the name of Jesus wherever we go. And this is something that ought to create a certain level of uh, introspection, right? We're going to look inward. We're going to look at ourselves and see, what do I need to do? What do I need to change? What do I need to start doing differently if I'm going to follow Jesus? Because if I don't, defeat is coming. If we're going to carry our cross and, and carry the name of, of, of Jesus, we must make necessary changes in order to fully commit to that. And then the last illustration we see is that of salt. Uh, let's read that in verse 34. It says, Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As far as consuming salt is concerned, like eating it, I'm not a dietitian or anything like that. I'm pretty sure we only add it because, well, it tastes good, right? I'm not sure it has any real nutritional value. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Y'all can call me out on that later. But I'm not sure it really adds a whole lot as far as your diet is concerned. And so if it's not actually making things taste better, it's useless. Why are we putting it on stuff? Get it out of there. Throw it out. What we see is it... If it loses its taste, it is useless. Well, when we bring ridicule upon the church, ridicule upon God, upon Jesus, what use are we? What have we done to provide? What have we done to help uh, strengthen the kingdom? What have we done to, uh, to truly serve God? What we've done is we abhor His name in a pretty useless way or a vain way, you might say. 
Well, when God made a covenant with Israel, uh, he made them recall the great thing that God had done for them, right? He brought them out of Egypt where they were slaves. You read that all throughout the Old Testament. They're constantly going back to that story. They were to recognize that he was Jehovah. He was the one true God. They weren't going to make any idols of any kind representing him. And through their words and actions, they were going to carry the name of God everywhere they went. But shortly after, as we already referenced, they build this idol, they even attribute to it the deliverance of Egypt, and they carried the name of God in vain. We looked last week at Romans 1. Romans 1, I think, kind of illustrates something along these lines a good bit. We talked about it last week. Paul uh, lists this long progression of sins. Uh, he mentions foolishness, idol worship, serving the creation rather than the creator. Talked about homosexuality, haters of God, being untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, doing these things even though they knew they were wrong. And not only that, promoting others to do the same, right? Y'all remember that, Romans chapter 1. But remember where it all started? It all started because they failed to honor God. Romans 1 and verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God and give thanks. Like the sins of Israel, these people failed to honor God and give thanks to Him, despite knowing what He had done for them. This is when we take the name of the Lord in vain, when we do not honor Him as He's supposed to be honored. And part of the way we honor Him is by obeying by looking at what he has said and following through on that. Peter writes about this in, in more of the positive sense in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We read through that earlier back in Exodus chapter 19, right? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. You were created, you were set apart so that you would represent Him. You would proclaim His excellencies in the way that you act. The one who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, because of the way that you have represented God, it would glorify God in the day of visitation. Paul also illustrates this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 11. In this, it, it reads like a prayer of, of sorts. To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus is glorified when we profess His grace, when our actions profess His grace, when we are doing these things, walking in a manner worthy of the calling, truly carrying the name of God, or taking the Lord's name. It's far more than just flippantly using His name, but it's carrying His name. It's reflecting Him wherever we go. It's how we consider His commandments. It's how we follow them. It's how we show our value in the kingdom in proclaiming the grace of God. We don't just use the name of Jesus as some form of identity. 
as, as, in, in the sense of how the world uses it. We don't just use Jesus' name as a family tradition of some kind. But we truly are committed to him and we show the goodness of God and his saving grace in the way that we behave. God's grace is shown in the sacrifice of Jesus, as we've sung a lot about this morning, and how he proved the love of God by giving up himself on the cross. Now, I don't think Luke 14 implies that all of us must consider every single possible difficulty that we're going to encounter before we commit our lives uh, to Jesus. And, as, and, and, and to take it a step further, once you've considered all those possibilities, you had better be ready right now to take on every single one of those difficult. I don't think that's what's being implied. The fact is, we don't know how much it, it costs to build the tower, figuratively speaking. We don't know everything. We also don't know just how powerful or, or, or just how many enemies we're going to encounter and how powerful that enemy might be. Sometimes we feel rather useless. Does that mean we cannot be followers of Jesus? No, Jesus encourages us to count the cost, yes, but part of that counting had better be Jesus himself. Have you considered Jesus? Because Jesus is going to help you build that tower. As you count your cost, you better count him as one who is going to help you as you go. As you count the cost, Jesus will help defeat enemies. No matter how many there are, have you considered him? And Jesus will help us become useful when we don't feel all too useful. When you count the cost of following him, do not forget you are not alone in this journey. Not only do we have other people who are here with us this morning, but Jesus himself, Jesus can help us do the things that we ought to do. While there is a great responsibility on us for carrying God's name, let us not be fooled into thinking that we are doing this on our own. Let us lean on God, lean on his grace, and carry his name wherever we go. Do you have the name of Jesus? Are you carrying it right now? If you are not a Christian, having help in this life, I hope, is something that appeals to you. Um, if not, eventually, I think it will. But I want you to know that, that what we've read this morning and what we've sung about this morning is one who died on the cross for us and is willing to help us along the way. Have you committed your life to him? And maybe you already have at some point, but you have not been carrying the name of Jesus where, how, you, how you ought to be doing. One beautiful thing about the gospel is, um, sure, we are reborn, but we are constantly being brought back to Jesus because he is constantly reaching out, trying to help. Reach back out to him. If you need to recommit or commit your life for the first time to Jesus, I invite you to come up now while we stand and while we sing.